you have your Bibles, if you would, take them out and turn to Luke chapter 22. Luke 22 will be one of our focus passages as well. Uh, you can use a bookmark or something if you want and go to 1 Corinthians 11. We'll bounce around some though this morning. <clears throat> We're continuing our series on worship and specifically now looking at public worship. As we gather together here, what do we do? And what does the Bible tell us to do in this service as we gather? Uh, this morning, you can see the Lord's table here. And we'll be observing Lord's Supper together. And so that's what we're going to be focusing on is, is Lord's Supper. And we want to see what the, what the Bible says in regards uh, to Lord's Supper. Next week, we'll be focusing on baptism. To be honest, uh, baptism should come before Lord's Supper. Be a lot easier to preach that way as well. Uh, you might say, well, couldn't you have decided that? In a way, yes, but at the beginning of the year, we always plan out our Lord's Supper, and that happened to be today. And I didn't want to mess that up. I didn't want to move it or, or change it. And plus, we have someone who's going to be baptized next week, so it kind of fit to do baptism uh, next week. Uh, but the two do go together in some way, which we'll, which we'll see and again, I, I would like to be preaching on baptism first, but we're not. We're going to look at the Lord's Supper. Sadly, in most of circles today uh, that we could find ourselves in, in churches, evangelical churches, Lord's Supper is something that's overlooked. It's an ordinance that's not really thought about too often. In fact, when it's done, if it's done, it's just maybe a tack on at the end of a service and not something really well thought through. I don't know if you're aware of it, but today is uh, Reformation Sunday. It's actually a Sunday that's celebrated by Protestants, uh, by the Protestant church, uh, celebrating the Reformation that took place uh, when there was a separation with the Roman Catholic Church and others because of justification, because of quite a few different things. But one of the things that was very hotly talked about and, and fought over was Lord's Supper, of what's happening there, what's taking place there. And that's just not something you hear too often. A lot of people, Lord's Supper, again, it's just, it's just something we do. We don't even ask the question of what's its purpose or what is happening during the Lord's Supper. And so hopefully we'll be able to look at that some this morning and answer those questions the first question would be, where does the Lord's Supper come from? And that's why I had you turn to Luke 22. And we'll be focusing on verse 14 through 23. So hopefully you can follow along with me uh, as I read these verses, seeing where the Lord's Supper comes from. It says, And when the hour came, he reclined at table, at table, and the apostles with him, and he said to them, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it amongst yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes 
as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. We see here in this account, in this gospel account of Luke, Jesus instituting something new with these disciples and doing something new with them. You see, the Passover meal would have been something that the disciples were very familiar with, that they would have been doing their whole life at this time of year. It wouldn't have been an odd thing, and they would have known exactly every step along the way of how the Passover meal would go. It was ingrained in them. They, they knew the rites. They knew the, the rituals that would be done. But this that Jesus did here was not normal. It was not part of the tradition, what he was saying and what was happening here. And so this had to be very curious for them. And we, we see that Jesus even saying that it's something new in verse 20. Because he says, this cup is poured out for you as the, the new covenant in my blood that's happening. Now they would have been very familiar with the word covenant. That would have been, wouldn't have been a crazy thing for them to hear. But a new covenant is happening and taking place here. That would have been something that would have perked their interest. And we even see Jesus here saying, do this in remembrance of me. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where I told you to put your thumb or put a bookmark there in scripture, the apostle Paul gives some instructions on this as well. When the apostle Paul gives instructions, he actually says that he received this from the Lord to tell them what to do during this time because there was an issue going on in the Corinthians church that they were not handling the Lord's Supper well. They were not doing it appropriately. And so Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23 through 26, he says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now the reason I read that is because it might not be perfectly clear to you when you read the gospel account that this is actually something we should still be doing. Because it could kind of come across that what Jesus is saying is to his disciples is do this now in remembrance of me. A one-time thing, maybe. But what we see is right away in the early church, as the church is established, Jesus dies, he's buried, he rises again, he ascends on high to the right hand of the Father, that the church right away is observing Lord's Supper together. So, so common that it's already been kind of perverted at this point by this church who Paul has to deal with. And he says to them, as often as you do it, do it in remembrance of him. And we also need to do it well and do it right. And that's what 1 Corinthians 11 is a lot about. Paul talking to them about this. And so I want you to think about this. I know I didn't think about this too much as a, as a kid. And, and to be honest, probably not enough as an adult either. But this morning, when we gather in this place to partake of this Lord's Supper, do you realize that we are a part of a tradition that spans 2,000 and some years. The church that has been saved by God's grace, taking of this to be reminded and to, to see visually of what God has done for us through his son. It's no small matter 
to be a part of it. It's a very special thing that God has given us. And we join in, like I said, with the church who's been doing it for a very long time. And so what is the significance then of this meal? Like why a meal? Why would God give us a meal? Why, why food? And what does this all mean? Well, this New Testament act that Jesus gave us that we read there in Luke, it does connect to the whole Bible. It's not just a New Testament thing, it connects all the way through the Old Testament. And so I want us to see that. In fact, way back in Genesis chapter three, we see sin brought into this world with food, with the help of food. It's enticing to the eyes. And so in Genesis chapter three, verse six through seven, it says, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened. And they knew they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So very early on in the history of mankind, we see food becoming important. Food was enticing. It was commanded, do not eat of this tree, but yet... Adam and Eve saw that it was better to disobey God than to obey God, and so they chose to eat of this food. Now, after this would happen, God would declare to the serpent, because he had, had led them to this, he said that they are gonna be, he is going to be dealt with, and he's going to be dealt with by the seed of this woman. And so in Genesis 3.15, he says to the serpent, God does, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so we, we see God already working in this and declaring that somebody was going to come to deal with the problem that happened through the eating of this fruit here. Later in life of Israel, we see Israel, which is a nation that has been called out by God, chosen by God. Uh, we see at a point in their history that they are held captive in Egypt. They are slaves, and they're slaves with no hope. They're in need of saving. They're in need of a redeemer, and God provides for them a redeemer. And Moses, and you hopefully know this story, Moses is in Egypt, and all of a sudden all these plagues are happening that God is declaring to the Egyptians, hey, this is going to happen to you, and it, and it happens but we get down to the very last plague, and then this very last plague, what God says is there's going to be the angel of death, and the angel of death is gonna come through the land and is going to strike the firstborn in every household. That's the plague that's declared. Terrifying. That's a terrifying thought. Tonight, when you go to bed, when you wake up, if you're the firstborn, you're dead. There'll be death in every house in every single household. But God also established something to save his people, right? To save his people. It wasn't just, this is gonna happen to you too. It was, no, I'm, I'm gonna establish something for you to save you. And so in Exodus chapter 12, verse 21 through 28, this is what he says. This is what, what he tells the people. It says, then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. 
For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you as he has promised you, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshiped. Then the people of Israel went and did so. And the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. So we see God instituting this rite of Passover and, and telling the people, Death is going to take place. But I'm going to give you a pass if you will have a sacrifice in your home and put its blood on the doorpost. I will see this and I will move on. You will be saved. You will be atoned for by this sacrifice, by this lamb that the families would pick. A very interesting thing to think about is a quote uh, from Alex Moter. I think this is from the book that Pastor Spencer is using in his Sunday school class. And if you have that book, this quote's on page 44. This is what he says. He says, in verse 30, there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Divine judgment on those who had refused to obey God's word took the token but dreadful form of death in each Egyptian house of the firstborn son. In the houses of Israel... The dead body was that of the carefully selected lamb. I think sometimes we forget about this. Every household in Egypt that night did have death, including the Israels, including Israels. Their homes had death too. It was just there was a sacrificial death that took place so that the firstborn wouldn't die, the lamb died instead. And it shed its blood. And the people of Israel at the time were actually told as well, to then go forth and eat of this lamb, taste of it, eat it, consume it. This is for you, so that salvation can come. And so instead of the taste of death that many of us have experienced in our life that brings forth hurt, it brings forth mourning, it brings forth loss. Instead, what the Israelites experienced on that night of Passover is they experienced the taste of roasted lamb of sustenance, of pleasure, of joy. You know how that feeling is when you get to eat of something that tastes so good. When you're with family and you're celebrating, that's a good time together. That's what the Israelites were experiencing while the Egyptians were experiencing sorrow, loss, and chaos. And we see the goodness of God in this to provide for his people the Passover. One of the important things to note that we see in Exodus chapter 12 is down in verse 48. Because in Exodus 12 verse 48, God says something very specific about the Passover. He says, if a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised that he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. Now, I make mention of that because this is an important point in moving forward in a little bit, especially in terms of baptism. 
Israel was given an outward sign that God had chose them and that they were going to be obedient to him. And we know what this outward sign was. It was circumcision. Which you remember later, Paul would say, circumcision, what avail is that? It's, you need circumcision of the heart is what a true Israelite is. But there was this outward sign. And the outward sign was very important to God, so much so that he says here, you cannot partake of Passover if you are not circumcised. Do not let it happen. Even if a foreigner comes in, if they want to partake of Passover, they must be circumcised first. It was serious. It was a very serious thing. And so I just want to point that out so you can remember that in your head as we move forward. Within the Old Testament, as we move on from Passover, there are some other very important passages that are pointing us to this supper. I want to share a few of them with you. One of them is in Genesis 14, verse 17 to 20. It'll be up on the screen. This connects a lot with Hebrews. Some of you actually asked me questions before. I've received emails about this guy, Melchizedek. This is where Melchizedek first comes into play. Genesis 14, verse 17 to 20. And look what it says. Talking about Abraham. After his return from the defeat of Chedorlamar and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava. That is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. We have a really interesting passage here that we really find hard to understand until we have the book of Hebrews read and understood. Because in the book of Hebrews, when, when trying to talk about Jesus and how important Jesus is to us, and he says, Jesus is our high priest. But there's an issue. Jesus can't be our high priest because he's not a Levite. And only the Levites were allowed to be high priests. But the writer of Hebrews says, hey, he comes from a place much bigger than the Levites. Jesus is our high priest in the order of Melchizedek, who is the first high priest to the most high God, who we don't even know. Again, this goes into a lot of things, which I probably shouldn't be talking about this morning. It doesn't have much to do, but... We don't know of Melchizedek's death. He seems to reign forever. He's king. He's also a high priest. And this is what we have in Christ. He's, he's a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. But what is Melchizedek carrying when he comes out to Abraham? Bread and wine. That's what he has. Some food. As simple as bread and wine. Later in the book of Proverbs, King Solomon writing, and in chapter 9, verse 1 through 6, notice what he says. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her beast. She has mixed her wine. She also has set her table. She has set out her young women to call from the highest places in the town. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says, come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. We see again hints of this Lord's Supper that would be instituted. In Isaiah 25, verse six through nine, I know I'm reading a lot of scripture, but it seems to have better things to say than I do. 
Isaiah 25, six through nine, says on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Again, a meal, declaring the salvation of our God. Or maybe even a more familiar one, and this will be the last one from the Old Testament this morning. But in Psalm 23, verse five, I'm sure you're somewhat familiar with Psalm 23. It's probably the most popular Psalm out there. But in verse five, as David is talking about the struggles in life with the fact that he has a shepherd who cares for him and watches over him, what he says of his shepherd is he says, you prepare a table before me. In the presence of my enemies, you anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. David, in the midst of trial and in the midst of struggle, the grace that he's experienced from God is so great that he says, it's like you prepare a table before me in the midst of my enemies and we sit and we recline and we eat together. We can enjoy each other's company even knowing that death is at the door. It's coming. You see again, a little picture I think of what God has instituted for us in the Lord's Supper. All of these things in the Old Testament we see are fulfilled in Christ, in Jesus in the Old Testament, as I've read, we are pointed again and again to the need of a savior. We're pointed, uh, we're pointed again and again to the need of a, of a king. We're told of a, of a sacrifice that is needed. We, we see this painted in the Passover with the, with the lamb that was needed for each family. We know that there's one to come who is truly wise, who will help us and who will, who will lead us, who once and for all will bring for his people peace and that they will be able to sit and to eat a meal together, prepared only by him. The Old Testament again and again points, points God's people to this. And in Christ, we have this. What we read in, in Luke there, Jesus saying, this is the new covenant. This is my body. This is my blood. Jesus is declaring, I am the fulfillment of these things. And so in Christ Jesus, we have all of these promises being fulfilled and all of these promises being given to us, his people. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7 through 8, Paul writes, he's talking about sin, he's talking about sexual impurity, and in that he puts, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ and look how he describes Christ. Our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, that festival being the Lord's Supper. Not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul takes a big step here, declaring Jesus to be that spotless lamb that these families would look for, to bring into their home, 
to sacrifice in hopes that God would accept this sacrifice for them. And Paul's saying, this has been fulfilled in Jesus. There's no more need for us to find a spotless lamb. There's no more need for us to raise one up so that we can kill it and hope that it atones for our sin. No, Jesus' death sacrifices for us and it atones for our sins. Jesus died the death that you deserve. Jesus died the death that I deserve. Just like, just like that lamb would die the death that the people deserved, Jesus does that for us. And now because of that, we eat of his flesh and we drink of his blood like we talked about last week. Remember last week, we, we talked about the fact that in Hebrews it says, Jesus died where? Outside the walls. Not inside the gate, because at this point during Passover, it was only the priests that would eat of the sacrifices and taste of its flesh. The rest of it was discarded and burned outside the city gates. But in Hebrews, the writer tells us, our Christ, Jesus, he went and died outside the gates for you so that you could taste of his flesh, so that you could drink of his blood, so that you could experience the grace that he gives. And it had to be done outside of the gates. And so no longer is, is tasting of Christ just for the priests. It's, it's for all of us here this morning who've been saved by his grace. Jesus himself has prepared a meal for us that is made up of himself, his body, and his blood. And this is a meal that only he can prepare. You can't prepare it. I could not prepare it. I could not do this. Only he could do it. You see, in families, we like to pass down recipes and different things. And a lot of you have probably found this out. You just can't make that pie as good as your mom. You try to make the biscuits. They just don't come out as good as your mom's. You're like, what I have the same recipe here, right? But there's just, there's just something about it. We don't know what it is. See, when it comes to this supper that the Lord has been promising us all throughout Scripture, you and I cannot make it up. We could not do it. It could only be done by the Son of God, and it was done by him. Jesus has prepared this meal for us. There's many other connections that we don't have a ton of time for. I already talked about him in Hebrews with Melchizedek. How the writer of Hebrews says he's a better priest in the order of Melchizedek. We see in the New Testament that Jesus is our righteous king that we've waited for since David himself. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, it says, And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us, what? Wisdom from God, which fulfills the Proverbs passage I read about wisdom, preparing a table and mixing the wine and having the bread ready. Come, she says. Come, says wisdom. Get rid of your simple ways and come here and eat at this table. This is fulfilled in Christ, who is wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. He's also covered us with his sin, with his perfect blood. He's covered our sin we also know that right now he's provided for us mercy as he sits at the right hand of the Father continually interceding for us on our behalf. And why has Jesus done all this? He's done all of this to be obedient to the Father, but yes, he's also done it so that it could all be credited to you. So that it all could be credited to me, to those who by faith through grace, right? Right? Grace through faith, I mean, sorry, that we get to 
receive these things so that you and I, in the midst of our sin, in the midst of our struggles, in the midst of our rebellion against God, that God would save us through the blood of his son. And we get to be reminded of that every time we partake of this meal. It does leave us with a question, though, is what is happening when we partake of this meal? What's happening currently? What is happening right now? I want to look at this in three parts, past, present, and future. And the first is the past. As we partake of this, we remember what Christ has done for us. Pretty soon you'll get these cups. It's got bread there and it's got the juice there. And as we look at these things, we should be reminded of what Christ has went through for us, how he, how he saved us and how he redeemed us from the bondage of sin and slavery to sin. You see, we don't, we don't have, we, we're not asked to do this anymore, but we don't have to take that lamb and kill it. You see, when, they, when the family would do that, I don't know how they felt doing that. It had to be some mixed emotions going through the killing of that lamb to put at your table. There was joy knowing that God had provided this escape for you through this lamb. But there had to be some sadness, no doubt, as the blood of that lamb was on your hands as you killed it. I don't know if the family sat and all watched. In our day and age, I can tell you exactly how it would be. It would probably be dad, or if dad is squeamish and faints over blood, it'd have to be mom go out there. But the kids wouldn't be allowed around. We just wouldn't do that anymore. We'd say, kids, you need to go inside. This is too ugly. This is too brutal. I don't want you to witness this at this age. And so we would send the kids somewhere else, and, and we would then take that lamb and, and do the deed so that nobody could see it. But I wonder if that's how they did it. You see, when we take this cup and we have this bread and we have this juice, it is a reminder of us that we as the kids can't just go on back and not see this. If we are really going to be the children of God, we must look upon our Savior in his humiliation, in his death, because that is your death. That is the death you deserve. And so we must look upon it and we must accept it and we must remember that this was done for us so that we could be adopted into his family because there was no other way. Christ must die for us to be a part of this family. And so when we think about this, we have to also realize that this is only for us as his family those who have been saved by God's grace. This means nothing to you if you haven't trusted in Christ. It's just a cracker, and it's just some juice. And so you don't need to partake of it. But also, we would say, and falling back with what I talked about in Passover, this also is a right for people who are part of the family of God, who followed God in baptism. I found it interesting that when I said this a few weeks ago, it was kind of controversial to some people. All of a sudden, I started getting questions 
phone calls and some emails about what are you talking about? And the reason I find that so interesting is because in order to be a part of our church, in order to be a member here at Monroe Missionary Baptist Church, it is very clear that you must be saved by God's grace. But there's another, there's another stipulation. Do you know what it is? Anybody? Baptism. We are Baptists. And baptism should be important to us. And we find it to be so important that we will hold from people membership into a local church because of baptism. And I've had to face those people before. We want to join your church, Pastor Tim. All right, have you trusted in Christ? Yes, I have. Have you, have you followed him in baptism? No, I have not. Well, you can't be a member here. You, you have to be baptized. I'm guessing this morning that is not controversial to anybody here. But when we say, but to partake of this, you need to be baptized as well, all of a sudden it's controversial. See, it's a very confusing thing to me. Because God has given authority to the churches to administer this ordinance to the church. And baptism is how I know you're a part of this church. It's how I know you've trusted in Christ. It's the visual sign. It's the outward sign that you have trusted in him. And this morning, I know I'm not preaching on baptism, but I would beg and plead with you. If you've trusted in Christ and you have not followed him in believer's baptism, what in the world makes you think you have the right to withhold that? What is causing you to not do that? Now, this is the response I've got from some people, and I'm gonna tell you Pastor Scott's response because I thought it was good and it's not mine and you can yell at him. But the response that I got from people is their example they would give me was the thief on the cross. They said, well, the thief on the cross wasn't baptized. I said, well, I'm not telling you baptism saves you. I'm telling baptism is what initiates you into the visible church. And so what Pastor Scott said is you have two choices this morning. You can either face crucifixion like the thief on the cross, which happened to him right away, or be baptized and have Lord's Supper. Which one do you want? Because they pull out this very odd situation. And again, I am not here this morning arguing for baptism equals justification. But I will point you to this. Find for me in scripture anywhere a non-baptized Christian. It doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. When Peter is preaching at Pentecost, when he's preaching, what, 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 what must we do, the people say? What does he say? Repent and be baptized. And they did. The Ethiopian eunuch, what hinders me today from being baptized? Look, there is water, nothing. God calls us to baptism. And if you can't follow him in baptism after salvation, then I think the question would be, what makes you think then you can partake of this sacred Lord's Supper this morning with this church family. I do think it's a serious thing that we should think about. And it harkens back all the way to the circumcision rule of being a part of Passover, an outward sign of an inward change of heart. And so too, baptism is our public confession of what God has done in our hearts and in our lives. And it's our initiation into the local church body of whom now we sit and eat this meal with together. And so that's past. What about present? Well, presently, 
we know that the Bible teaches us that as we partake of this Lord's Supper, that Jesus is here with us. Jesus said, take, eat, this is my body. Take, drink, this is my blood. Now we would argue, I think we have a good argument here, that this isn't the literal body and blood of Christ. And probably my main argument for that would be this. Right now, bodily, Christ sits at the right hand of the Father. That's where he is. And so this cracker, this juice, doesn't turn into his body, doesn't turn into his blood. But I also think we should not minimize the mystery here that scripture kind of leaves us with. Because Jesus does declare that he is with us here. He's with us as we partake in this supper. He's with us as we partake in this meal. And this is where it hurts so bad of how, how lazy we've gotten with the Lord's Supper. Because when you tell people, hey, are you gonna come to church? Oh, I'm not sure. Hey, but we're partaking of Lord's Supper. You need to be there. In most people's mind, it's like, what's the big deal? The big deal is Jesus is with us when we partake of this Lord's Supper and you're going to miss that? You're gonna miss out on that? Tell me your excuse to not have dinner with Christ today. What is it? How is it any better than what we get to partake of this morning? So I think we need to let that mystery kind of hang there of what that fully means, but to understand it means something. We shouldn't hide from it. We again, as we partake of this today, we again proclaim his death and we again affirm our faith in him. See, sadly, after the Passover, after this great scene of redemption, as God saves his people, as the Israelites walk out of their house, their family intact, not dead, but they, they hear the cries of the Egyptians, death and mourning. God frees them from this land and they, they cross the Red Sea. It's not too long after. In Numbers 11, four through six, you can read this. It's not long after the people are doing this. We want something better to eat, God. If only we could go back into Egypt where we had fish, where we had garlic, where we had onions, we had things. Now, all you've given us, God, is this, is this manna. Please, let us go back to Egypt. We look at that, don't we? And we say, how ridiculous those people were. They would rather be slaves in a foreign land with foreign gods than serve the almighty God who's, who's ripped them out of the Egyptians' hands by his own might who gives them the manna they need each and every day, day in and day out, and they're gonna sit here and complain against that God? But how often do we in our life act this way? Oh, how I kinda wish I wasn't a Christian so I could act like them and go to the party they're going to. Oh, I wish I wasn't pastor of the church and people actually knew who I was so I could go and do this. Or go and do that. You remember the Psalms, Psalm 1. This week we looked at Psalm 26 in our prayer meeting. To not, to not stand with sinners or sit in the seat of the scornful, but how often in our lives, if we're honest, as Christians, there are times we look at those people and we think, how much fun does that look? Last night Michigan played Michigan State and they beat them, by the way. I just want you to know that. But there were people who went up to that stadium and tailgated all day. And I can guarantee you, it was a blast. I can guarantee you, it was fun, especially because they won. 
And the parties that happened after, just fun, no doubt. And it's so easy, is it not, to look at that and think, God, how I wish I could go back to that life. We're no different than them Israelites. I wish I could just go back to Egypt. Taste of the sweet nectar of Egypt once again, of the fish, the garlic, the salt, the onions. And God, all you give me is this manna. I wonder how many of us this morning will think that way as we take of this. Is this really worth it, taking this cracker and this juice? Is this really better than what the world has to offer? Yes, it is. It's much better. Because we get to sit and we get to contemplate now in the present of who we are in him. We were sinners, lost with no hope. But we come this morning to our God, our Father, who through his perfect son saved us and the power of the Spirit. Saved us. And there's nothing this world can offer us that can save our soul. Absolutely nothing. There's no chef. There's no bakery. There's nobody who can prepare this table for me. Oh, they could provide some fun. They could even make my taste buds dance at times with how good they are at the things that they do. But they can never provide for me forgiveness of my sins that will give me eternity with my Savior. There's only one who can do that. I was at a conference a few years back. It was in 2017, actually. It was a lot longer ago than I had thought. And at this conference was a pastor by the name Sinclair Ferguson. Uh, We talk about him sometimes. I really love listening to him, reading his books. But he taught on the Lord's Supper to a group of pastors. And in this, he, he gave an example that was really beautiful. Me and Pastor Spencer were talking about it this week. And I felt like I'd be robbing you if I didn't share it with you. It's a story of a pastor. His name was John Rabbi Duncan. And he was providing over the Lord's Supper. This was years and years and years ago. And he came up to a woman who was weeping. The woman was was crying. And you could just tell she was very emotional with what was going on in her life, whatever it was. And at this time, they would pass the cup to each other. It was a common cup, and they would share in the cup. And it had come time for the woman to have the cup. And the cup bounces around, and it gets to her. She takes a second with it, and she just just passed it on. You see, she she felt too unworthy, knowing her sin, knowing her life, maybe even knowing her attitude or whatever it was at that moment. But at that present moment, she felt too unworthy to partake of the cup. Well, the beautiful thing in this illustration is after she passed it by, it went down to a couple people, and the pastor, John Rabbi Duncan, went and he grabbed the cup, and he walked the cup right back to the woman. He handed it to the woman, and he said, take it, woman, take it. It is for sinners. This is for sinners. See, oftentimes at the present, what pastors will say, and I do this too, is I tell you to contemplate. I tell you to think and to remember and to think about your life. And Paul even tells us to do this in 1 Corinthians 11, that when you take of this cup, to do it seriously. But oftentimes I think what we think is we start to think about how bad we are 
And we start to think about our sin, and I think all of us have had that hesitation to say, you know what? God, I think I'm too bad today to partake of this cup. That's not what it means to contemplate. That's not what it means to examine yourself. This cup is for sinners. But the contemplation that needs to happen and take place is, but who are you in Christ today? Have you been saved by his grace? Have you tasted of the freedom that he alone can give? And so even sitting here in shame and in some guilt because of sin in your life, if you've trusted in him, you say, but Pastor Tim, that was a long time ago. It was when I was 10 or 12 years old and my life's kind of been a wreck. Listen, if he saved you when you were 10 or 12, he still has you. And this cup is for you this morning to taste of and to eat of. And so our participation in this is a participation with Christ. I remember years ago, we had a Sunday school class and I think it was called Koinonia. It was, I remember as a kid, like that's the dumbest name. I'm like, where did they come up with that? Just throw some letters together, right? But they had a Sunday school class named Koinonia That's what's happening here when we get together. The last verse I wanna share with you is 1 Corinthians 10, 16. Paul says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a koinonia, a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? You see, when you eat of that cracker, when you drink of that drink, What you are declaring, again, is Jesus, your righteousness, your works is what has saved me, not mine. And that's why as sinners we can take of that cup because we rest in him. But then lastly, future, as we take of this cup this morning, we look forward to the day to when we get to eat with Jesus once again in his kingdom face-to-face with our Savior and with our King. This is a promise that he has given us. Even in the Isaiah account that I read, where it says all the enemies will be gone, everything will be put away, all tears will be wiped from our eyes, and we will sup with our Savior one more time in glory with him. And we as Christians look forward to that day. We hold on to that day. We trust in that promise of God. And as we partake in Lord's Supper, we declare, Lord, come. Lord, come. We're ready. I hope that as you partake of this this morning, that you will examine yourself, that you will contemplate what Christ has done, that you will do it seriously. Because as we take of this, there definitely is that vertical aspect of of worship, of reflection, of remembering what Christ has done, of knowing that he is with us this morning. But there's also that dimension of us being together, doing it together. And how could we, how could any of us this morning take this cup and participate in the body and in the blood of Christ knowing that we have frustration with those who we sit here with? 
Because as all of you look at me this morning, none of you are here on your merit. None of you are gonna enter into glory because you are so great or because you are a member of this church or whatever it might be. We all gather here this morning in the name of Christ and what he has done. And if Christ can love you, shouldn't I love you? If Christ can love me, shouldn't you love me? Shouldn't we be in this together? So hopefully God will work in our lives this morning. I trust that he will as we partake of this supper together. We have some men who are gonna hand out these things. I'm gonna ask if they would come forward this morning. In a moment, they'll hand these out to you after I pray. Just ask that you would take it and, and hold on to it. These things can be tricky. There's a little film on top that opens up to, so that you can get to the bread. And then underneath that is another film for the, for the juice. So if you wanna kind of get that ready when you get it, you can. But I'll give instructions on, on when to eat. Let's bow together. Let's pray this, this morning. As we come to you this morning, to do what you've called us to do, to do what churches have been doing for a very long time. God, we join in with the Christians of the past, Christians even around the world, in remembering and reflecting on what you have done for us through Jesus. God, this morning, I pray that you would use this, this visual ordinance that you've given us to help us to see very clearly what it took for us to be justified, for us to be forgiven of our sins. Just as that family in Egypt would have to watch the death of that lamb that would die in their place, even though that lamb didn't do anything wrong, it would die in their place. So we understand that our spotless lamb was Jesus who would die in our place. So God, this morning, I pray that you would use this in our lives, those who are yours, but also I pray that you would, you would use it in the lives of those who aren't yours, that maybe you would use this to open their eyes to the truth of the gospel so that they would see their need of a savior. God, this morning, we want to honor you in what we do, and so help us to do that now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.